trace him with our lives. So let's just do that right now. Lord, we come before you. It is an absolute delight to worship you. You are God and there is no other. You give hope for the hopeless. You're a God of mercy and grace. You are holding all things together. You know the beginning from the end. Lord, our hope and our confidence is in you. And we're asking now, Lord, as we turn to your holy word, that you would, through the working and the power of your spirit, help us to internalize and to live out the truth that you have given us. And so we turn to you and we pray expectantly in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you want to find your Bibles, wherever they might be, maybe you've got them on that coffee table or maybe it's sitting right next to you, and turn to the book of Acts. And while you're doing that, I'd like you to just consider for just a moment, where in the world would we be if we didn't have maps? Especially in light of the fact that we have these like navigation tools like Garmin or Google Maps or Apple Maps. I mean, without them, we'd likely be lost. And just even like thinking of Garmin, just even in our own family, I mean, how many marriages has Garmin saved, okay? At least I want you to know that for Karina and I, it has been really helpful. There's nothing like being lost that brings out the best in you, right? I mean, some of your most stellar moments probably have occurred when you've been lost in the midst of lots of traffic and you're not sure where to go and you just realize that you took another wrong turn. But then, of course, if you have maps, you have a navigational tool to guide you, why all of a sudden you can actually be on course even in the midst of a lot of chaos and confusion and stress. Now, I want you to know that maps have been for centuries available. Some people, though, you know, they don't ever use maps. Some of them, like, don't even realize that they're on their phone. You can actually purchase, like, a Garmin unit and put it in your vehicle. Um, They may even have navigation built into their car or their truck, but they never use it. On the other hand, there are some folks that use it like all the time and like, I would never go anywhere without it. And there are some folks that have actually kind of internalized the map. They kind of know where to go. They've been down the path. Maybe they studied the map at one time and they've got it down. It's rote. They, They can make it happen. But I want you to know that God doesn't want his people lost. In fact, he wants them on mission. Did you know that God has a built-in navigational map in the Bible? Let me give you the site. It's Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. If you don't know this site, you're not familiar with its contents, it's likely you've kind of lost your way. You might be off target. You might be missing the mission. But I want you to know that this map that we have in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, it gives us the strategy that Jesus wants us to follow in fulfilling the Great Commission and tells us where we've been, where we're going, how we're to do it. It tells us why we're about this mission. It is actually critically important. And so I want you to realize that Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, is Jesus' plan of how we are to fulfill the Great Commission. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with the Great Commission. You know where it's found, Matthew chapter 28, 
verses 18 through 20. After the resurrection, Jesus appears and he makes these statements. And he says in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 20, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What Jesus says is, I am empowering you, and I am entrusting you with this mission. I want you to make disciples of all the nations. To make a disciple, discipleship is this. Remember, it's the intentional and relational process of maturing Christ-centered believers and mobilizing them for ministry. This is what God wants us to do. It is the great commission, and Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, gives us the strategy and the map of how it's to be done. And I want you to know that for me personally, uh, I have given myself to this mission. I've been thinking about how God has used individuals in my life that were on mission, that have brought me even to the point where I'm at today. Years ago, meeting Christians who actually would engage me with the gospel and have spiritual conversations with me, encountering college missionaries with Campus Crusade for Christ, now called Crew. There were people that were supporting them, people I've never met. They were praying, they were giving of their resources, people were giving of their time, they were making investments to engage me in spiritual conversations, to not only help me understand the gospel, but after I came to place my faith in Christ, to help me grow as a disciple of Jesus. They were on mission, they were praying, they were giving of their finances and of their time, and they were going. And I want you to know that to try to be on this mission, I've been far from perfect while I've been on it. At times, it's been very challenging. It's, sometimes it's absolutely overwhelming. It's far beyond anything that I could do. But yet, being on mission has given my life a real sense of direction, a purpose. There is a great delight and joy in knowing Jesus and following him. So how do you live on mission? That's why these verses, Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, are so critically important. And I want to give you the three keys that we find in these verses on how to live on mission. The first one is this. You need to trust in God's timing. So let me take you to Acts. Right before Jesus actually ascends into heaven, you have this discourse. And in verse 6, it says, "So then, So when they had come together... They were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus had been talking about the kingdom of God. You can see that in verse 3. And the verse right preceding this, in verse 5, he had talked about the Spirit is coming. 
And they've associated the coming of the kingdom and the spirit because of Old Testament passages like Joel chapter 2 or Ezekiel chapter 36. And they were actually expecting that there was going to be a literal kingdom and it was going to happen now. I mean, after all, Jesus had been talking about a literal kingdom. And he had been talking about the giving of the Holy Spirit, and they thought it was going to happen now. For folks that think that, well, there's not going to be an actual literal kingdom of Christ on the earth, I want you to know if, that was, if there was ever an opportunity for Jesus to straighten that out, here it would be. But no, they had it right. They had heard him correctly. They understood the Old Testament prophecies. There is going to be a literal kingdom on this earth. And so they are asking, Jesus, is it now? is now going to be the time where this is going to occur because you're resurrected. You have authenticated to the world that you are God. But notice what Jesus said in verse 7. He says, you know what? It's not for you to know the times or the epics. Times refers to the chronology, the duration of time, and epics speaks of the events that are going to occur. He says, it's not for you to know. You need to trust in God's timing. And I'll tell you, something far better than actually knowing about when this is going to happen is to know that all of time is under the Father's authority. You see that in verse uh, 7? You see, the Father has fixed this by his own authority. It's far better to know that all of time is under God's authority. The future is in God's hands. And I'll tell you, there's just great delight, and it brings about a missional focus when we trust in God's timing. But let me give you another key to living on mission. You find it at the beginning of verse 8. Not only are we to trust in God's timing, but we need to be empowered by his spirit. Look what he says, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. You shall receive power. You see, they've already received the Holy Spirit's saving power, his guiding power, his teaching power, and his miracle working power. They had seen it in Jesus. They were believers in Christ. But Jesus now tells them, I am going to now give you my spirit who will actually be in you forever, and he will empower you to be my witnesses. He's going to empower you to bear testimony of me. We think of witnesses, you think of like a a court scene. There's a judge, and if you were ever a witness, your role is to speak of what you have seen and what you've heard. The judge really isn't interested in your ideas. Um, He's not interested in different stories or even um, uh, different thoughts that you might have on the matter. He wants to know the facts. What is it that you have seen What is it that you have heard? And this is why God has given us his spirit. He has given his spirit so that we will be his witnesses. We will tell the truth about who Christ is, what he has done, the salvation that he brings, how he works, the transformation that comes from being a disciple of him. We are to be his witnesses. The word witness, Witness, actually, we get our word martyr from this word. 
And that's because so many of the early witnesses of Jesus Christ died. For the 11 uh, apostles that are here, all of them but one are going to die a martyr's death for being a witness to Christ. And the one that doesn't, John, he is actually brought into exile. And so God has given us his spirit so that we can be his witnesses. The secret and the power of the Christian life is to walk and abide in the Holy Spirit. God has given us his spirit so that we can have strength and peace and perspective, that we can have hope, there can be renewal. As we confess our sins, we experience that cleansing. Our heart is once again infused with life and joy and peace and hope. But I want you to know that the only way that we will ever be witnesses to this world is if we're walking by the Spirit. And you're saying like, okay, so what does that mean? Like, how does that actually happen that you are going to be empowered by his Spirit to be witnesses? How do you walk in the Spirit? Simply, it's this. It's to delight in God and to depend upon him and to desire to do his will. You, you actually enjoy God. You express your love and your delight and enjoyment in him. God wants you to enjoy this rich relationship that he's established with you as you placed your faith in Christ. But he also wants you to depend upon him. And surely... If you're like me, you are always at the end of yourself. There's far more to do. There's far more that's way beyond your reach. And so you ask God, will you do your work through me? There's a dependence upon the Spirit. There's a realization that I can do nothing apart from Christ. So you delight in God, you depend upon his Spirit, and you desire to do his will. And you're saying, well, like, well, what is his will? The Word tells you his will. That's why I were to let the word of God richly dwell within us. You spend time regularly, daily, looking at his word, and God shapes our desires. And he'll make it clear the path that we are to walk and the character that he's forming. He shapes our convictions. He gives us a sense of direction. And he will lead us and guide us. You'll be prompted by the spirit to move, to act, to speak, to pray. This is what it means to be empowered by the Spirit. And I can assure you, you and I will never speak of the gospel, never talk about Jesus or engage in spiritual conversations apart from the working of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to know that is one of the primary reasons God has given us his Holy Spirit is so that we will be his witnesses. So if you want to live on mission, Notice what this text is showing us. We need to trust in God's timing. We need to be empowered by God's spirit. And notice how this verse ends. We need to focus on God's priorities. And he says this, verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of, of the earth. You see, what Jesus is doing, he's presenting the map. He wants his disciples to be focused on his priorities. I want you to be my witnesses. I am giving you my spirit so that this will be a reality. 
we are to be witnesses of the truth of the gospel, the truth about who Christ is and the salvation he brings to sinners who repent and trust him in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. They receive Christ by faith and they recognize that salvation is all of grace. But we are also to be witnesses of the transformation that comes from being his disciples. Oftentimes, Christians understand like, well, I just need to bring the gospel. And absolutely, we must. But we speak not only of the truth of the gospel, but also of the transformation that comes from being his disciples, learning from him, growing in our relationship with him. And he says, you are to be my witnesses. And he's doing this while standing here on the Mount of Olives. He is pointing westward just two miles away. He says, I want you to begin here, Jerusalem. And he gives the map that we are to follow. Now, I want you to know that we're like, wow, that just is an awesome, admirable mandate. But I want you to know whether when the disciples heard this initially, it brought fear, it brought uh, bewilderment. This mandate that Jesus was giving was far beyond anything they thought they were capable of. When he pointed out to Jerusalem, he says, I want it to start here. Jerusalem, the capital, it's where the temple was. It was the uh, center for religious and economic and societal life. But Jerusalem wasn't their home. Almost all the apostles were from Galilee in the north. It was actually even north of Samaria. And Galilee was actually referred to as Galilee of the Gentiles. The people in Jerusalem considered themselves to be pure. They actually had to disdain for those up in the north. In fact, even Galileans spoke with an accent that gave them away. And I want you to know when he said, I want you to start in Jerusalem, that brought a lot of fear. What just happened in Jerusalem? Just outside Jerusalem, they had just crucified Jesus. They were still on the warpath for anyone who would be a follower of him. They wanted to put an end absolutely of this movement. And Jesus says, I want you to start in Jerusalem, the place of greatest hostility and intimidation. But then he goes on to say, and I want you then to go to Judea and Samaria. I want you to go to the region that's surrounding Jerusalem. Judea speaks of Jew, uh, means Jew. It's the place where all the Jews lived. And I want you to go there. But I want you to know the people of Judah kind of look down on the people of Galilee, and they're like, that would be really difficult for us to do that. But then when he said Judea and their distant cousin Samaria, they're like, oh no, we can't do that. I mean, ever since the early 8th century B.C., there has been this just bitter rivalry. You see, the Assyrians had gone to that northern part, which is now called Samaria. They colonized it, and they hauled out a lot of the Jews, and they brought in a whole bunch of other people, and they intermarried with the Jews that were living there. And all of a sudden, their faith was compromised. The people were compromised. A Jewish person would walk around Samaria because they didn't even want the dust of this that would come from Samaria on their sandals. That's how greatly they despised the Samaritans. Jesus says, I want you to start in Jerusalem. I want you to go 
Judea, and I want you then to move into Samaria. You are going to be my witnesses. That would mean that they would have to overcome huge regional pride and cultural arrogance, but to go into to Samaria, they would have to overcome strong ethnic prejudices that existed for generations. But then, to cap it all off, he says, I want you to go to the remotest part of the earth. My mission goes to the Gentiles, and you are going to be my witnesses to them. You see, they had spent their whole life trying to avoid Gentiles, to want to do nothing with them. And here Jesus says, my mission includes them. For the gospel is spread to the Gentiles, the followers of Jesus would have overcome centuries of racial and religious and cultural prejudice, and they'd have to break down well-established walls of separation. But I want you to know that they did it under the power of the Spirit, In fact, the book of Acts gives the first 30 years of the church history. And Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is the outline for the entire book. Acts chapter 1 through 7 actually talks about how they brought the gospel to Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 12, Judea and Samaria. And Acts 13 through the end, 28, is how they brought the gospel to the world. And even you see them at Paul in Rome in the capital, the imperial capital, They did it under the power of the Spirit, and the question is, will we? Will we continue this mission that God has entrusted to us? Will we be so compelled by the love of Christ that we will live on mission? Will we be building bridges of trust so we can bring the gospel to the nations? And so that's what we have before us. How do we know if we're living on mission? Pray, give, go is how we know that we are living on mission. When we are praying, beseeching, asking God for him to change hearts, when we are giving, giving of ourselves, giving of our time, giving of our finances for the furthering of his kingdom purposes, and when we are going, when we are going into our own communities and we are sending people from our church to the remotest part of the earth so that Christ will be known and people will be brought into his kingdom. And so we are called to be on mission and to missions. And so it starts here, right here at home. I mean, we start with our family, our community, our schools, our neighborhoods. We reach out with the gospel. And the beauty of living in Waco, Texas, is that the people of the world come to Waco. We have an opportunity to engage them with the truth and with the life. But we also want to influence our country. We need to realize that God has given us grace and strength in Christ to overcome ethnic prejudice. Christians should not be prejudiced. We are those who engage people of all races. We love them. God cultivates this love so we will bring his gospel and then we are to reach the world. We need to be sending people out from our midst to reach the world with the gospel of Christ. So we start local and we reach global. Friends, don't miss the map. Acts chapter one, Acts chapter one, verses six through eight. You know, every time you see a map, or you've got your little built-in navigation system, or you see an Apple map or a Google map, let it be a reminder that God has called us to live 
on mission. Pray, give, go is how we know we are living on mission. Let's pray. Lord,